Tuesday, May 3rd, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. The U.S. plans to reopen its embassy in Ukraine by the end of May as fighting moves away from Kiev. The U.S. move to send diplomats back to Kiev seems to be a coordinated effort with the European allies. The International Organization for Migration repairs buildings for millions of Ukrainians forced to flee their homes. UN migration spokesman Paul Dillon says IOM and his partners began the shelter rehabilitation program several weeks ago in response to the number displaced by the invasion. And the 2021 World Press Freedom Index paints a dire picture for journalism in most of the 180 countries ranked. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. There is growing speculation about the possibility of a trip to Ukraine by President Joe Biden. After the surprise weekend visit by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and several other Democratic Party members of the U.S. Congress. Here's more from VOA's Chief National Correspondent Steve Herman in Washington. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki during Monday's media briefing was asked whether we might soon see President Joe Biden in Kiev. I know the president would love to visit Ukraine, but not, no plans in the works at this point. So. As Ukrainians continue to repel Russian forces, Saki said an immediate objective for the United States diplomatically is to reopen the U.S. embassy in Kiev so that its envoys can again have a permanent presence there. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. The U.S. Treasury Affairs for Ukraine, Kristina Kivian, says if conditions permit, the embassy in Kiev could reopen by the end of May. U.S. diplomats departed the embassy nearly two weeks before Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, moving some functions to the western city of Lviv before eventually relocating to neighboring Poland. Some western countries have already moved their embassies back to Kyiv as the main focus of fighting in Ukraine has moved away from the capital to the east and south of the country. For more, I spoke with VOA State Department Bureau Chief Nike Cheng. The U.S. move to send diplomats back to Kiev seems to be a coordinated effort with the European allies because several European Union and NATO member states are returning their diplomats back to Kiev, including Austria, Belgium, the UK, France, Italy, Slovakia, and Slovenia. Sweden has said it will reopen its embassy in Kiev this Wednesday. Denmark has reopened its embassy in Ukraine for the first time in nine weeks. So the significance is that the return for foreign diplomats makes clear that there is a return to some semblance of safety in the Ukrainian capital after nearly two months of Russian bombardment and shelling. And some analysts say the U.S. move is to project a sense of calm, a sense of security in Kyiv, but that it is still a dangerous place to go to work. State Department always said the security and safety of U.S. diplomats are their top priorities. Therefore, they are doing a regular assessment on the security situation on the ground, and they will not return fully the diplomats back to Kyiv unless they have a sense of a security on the ground. What is the State Department talking about, for instance, some African countries who are abstaining from either voting, standing aside without taking any position as far as sanctions or as far as speaking up against Russia is concerned? But I recall the State Department counselor 
Derek Charlotte had a interview with the VOA, and he mentioned that the State Department, the U.S. is now forcing African countries to choose a side. The Speaker of the House of Representatives is still in Poland today after visiting Kiev and speaking with the Ukrainian president. What impact has our visit been? The State Department said that Nancy Pelosi and some congressional members' visit to Ukraine is sending a clear message that the United States stands with Ukraine and underscores the strong bipartisan commitment of the American people to supporting the brave people of Ukraine who are standing up to the Kremlin's brutality. The State Department said the delegation underscored that the U.S. will continue to work with the U.S. allies and partners in Europe to maintain support for Ukraine and to do everything the U.S. could to help the Ukraine defend itself. That's VOA State Department Bureau Chief Nike Ching speaking with me from Washington, D.C. A company based in Seattle, Washington, called Brink, is producing special drones to assist Ukrainian armed forces. The drones are used in search and rescue missions and can provide eyes in places where it's too dangerous to send people. Christina Shevchenko has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Blake Resnick, the 22-year-old founder and CEO of the Seattle-based company Brink, flew to Poland in March to personally deliver 10 drones he hopes will help Ukrainians push back the Russian invasion. His is one of dozens of companies, big and small, that are sending equipment to Ukraine to help the country in its fight against Russia. Each drone costs about $15,000, and Resnick himself held several training sessions explaining how to navigate and work the drones. Our drones today in, in Ukraine, they're, they're, they're executing on a couple mission sets. So the first is like general search and rescue, the kind of stuff we've been talking about. Flying into a building, looking for survivors, you know, trying to understand if, if the building is going to collapse further after a strike. It's also being used to determine the location of Russian forces. The drones were originally designed to aid tactical teams in barricade, hostage, and active shooter situations in the United States. And they don't depend on GPS. The drones can operate in complete darkness and can even break windows in order to get inside the building. Resnick started designing these unique drones when he was 17. In 2021, he attracted over $25 million in investments to his project. For him, helping Ukraine and donating drones was a simple decision. Resnick has Ukrainian roots. I think Ukraine's defense of their land is incredibly moral. I mean, I think this is one of the most, in fact, I believe this is the most black and white conflict I've seen in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, knowing that, that this is an area where technology could help, I, I felt, you know, I felt highly motivated to try to make that happen. Brink plans to donate more drones to Ukraine's military. And Resnick is already discussing the next installment with Ukraine's Ministry of Defense. For Kristina Shevchenko in Seattle, Washington, NLS News. The International Organization for Migration is fixing up many damaged and unused buildings to house nearly a million Ukrainians forced to flee their homes in the wake of Russia's invasion. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. 
The first phase of this program has been rolled out in the Zakopatia region in western Ukraine. UN migration spokesman Paul Dillon says IOM and its partners began the shelter rehabilitation program several weeks ago in response to the number displaced by the invasion. 7.7 uh, million people uh, internally displaced uh, within the country. This represents about 17% of the pre-war uh, population and an increase of some 1.2 million since the first uh, report was released uh, in the third week of March. Dylan says work is underway to rehabilitate university student dormitories and war-damaged hotels to provide safe accommodations for roughly one million homeless people. He says windows, doors, and roofs are being replaced. Electrical systems are being rewired. Sanitation facilities are being improved, and temporary partitions are being installed for privacy. We do not see these particular uh, facilities as being permanent structures. This is a t they're temporary measures to provide a safe, a secure and dignified environments for people to live in. And we are looking at those who are most, uh, who are most vulnerable. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, single parent headed households, um, people who are, have disabilities or people who are helping those with disabilities. The program initially will cover the five western regions of Ukraine. Dylan says these regions are the primary destination for newly displaced people because they are seen as safer than areas where fighting is more intense. He says the shelter rehabilitation program may be expanded to other regions depending on the need and the security situation. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The 2021 World Press Freedom Index compiled by Reporters Without Borders shows that journalism is completely or partially blocked in 73% of the 180 countries ranked by the organization. There has been no significant change in the Middle East and North African region, which maintained last place in the regional rankings. Algeria is ranked 146th and Morocco drops three places to 136th, with the judicial systems being used to help silence journalists. The report also ranks the Middle East's most authoritarian countries, Saudi Arabia. It comes in at 170, Egypt 166th, and Syria at 173. The index says the three have taken advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic to reinforce their methods of gagging the media and to reaffirm their monopoly on news and information. Reporter Angie Omar discussed the poor levels of press freedom in the Arab world with Sahar Kamis, a professor in the Department of Communications, at the University of Maryland College Park. She's an expert on Arab and Muslim media and the co-author of, quote, Egyptian Revolution 2.0, political blogging, civil engagement, and citizen journalism, unquote. I would say that the political aspect is obviously clear, which is the fact that there are authoritarian regimes which are pretty much, you know, having a very tight fist in terms of the margin of freedom of expression and freedom of the press, which is allowed in the different respective countries in the MENA region or the Middle East and North Africa uh, region. That means that, uh, you know, you're not allowed to really express your views openly. And if you do, you can always face very dire and very negative consequences, such as being arrested, detained, you know, in some cases uh, killed. So uh, that makes, of course, the, uh, the risk uh, or the high price of, you know, speaking up very intimidating for many people. So when I wrote my, my second book, uh, Egyptian Revolution 2.0, uh, myself and my co-author were talking about political bloggers uh, who paved the way for the Arab Spring in general and the Egyptian Revolution in particular. If you look at many of these young blog bloggers, many of them are not really effective or active anymore in the realm of political opposition because obviously they're scared of the 
tightening and shrinking margin of freedom which is allowed for them. Some of them have stopped their own uh, writing or blogging altogether. Some of them are writing or blogging about social issues but not political issues. And some of them are just exercising their own resistance or opposition from the diaspora, from self-exile because of fear of certain consequences. With so many restrictions on the traditional and social media in the region, what is the way out and how could Arab people enjoy press freedom like normal nations? I mean, really, it's all interrelated and intertwined. I mean, there's the political aspect, the economic aspect, there's the social aspect, there's also the legal aspect. And there are certain aspects also related to uh, bureaucracy and related to lack of proper uh, education and media training and media literacy, uh, the, the level even of education and training when it comes to journalists and people who are wor- working in the field of journalism is still very uh, low and still very marginal in terms of the number of people who have been officially or professionally trained in the field of journalism and taking on a journalistic career. So all of these factors really kind of inhibit the margin of freedom and the margin of professionalism, I should say, in Arab media. The best way is to start from the bottom up, to start from uh, improving the level of training and the level of education uh, for journalists in the region. And of course, there is always the issue of the political restrictions and the dictatorships, which are pretty much, you know, as we said before, uh, constraining and limiting the amount of freedom. So I think that the other alternative, obviously, is social media and new media, which is why a lot of people are using the social media and new media for the purpose of expression of their own opinions. Are there any examples of where press freedom, whether it's traditional or social media, has yielded very good results like helping to clean up corruption, abuse of power, good governance, or democracy? The clearest example, of course, is the uh, political bloggers who paved the way for the Arab Spring in 2011 and for the Egyptian Revolution in 2011. Uh, they really created what we can describe as a spillover effect, meaning by breaking the taboo in the realm of politics, by talking about issues such as corruption and violations of human rights and governmental abuses, they were breaking certain taboos and therefore compelling the mainstream media to talk about these sensitive issues. Even in the social domain, I would say by breaking taboos around issues such as sexual harassment and domestic violence and others, they were also breaking social taboos and compelling the mainstream media to talk about uh, these particular sensitive issues. If you want to talk about more recent examples, I can give examples from Tunisia and examples from Sudan. In these two particular countries, there has been a very strong movement among journalists and those who are working in the field of media to resist autocracy and to resist uh, dictatorship and to try to really widen the margin of press freedom in these two countries in particular using different forms of expression online and offline, which I think is the best formula or the best possible uh, you know, combination in order to achieve some tangible and important results. That's reporter Andrew Omar speaking with Sahar Kemis, a professor in the Department of Communications at the University of Maryland College Park. In other news, Israel has lambasted Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov for claiming that Adolf Hitler had Jewish origins, saying it was an, quote, unforgivable, unquote, falsehood that debased the horrors of Nazi Holocaust. In a signal of sharp deteriorating relations with Moscow, the Israeli Foreign Ministry summoned the Russian ambassador and demanded an apology. Lavrov made the assertion on Italian television on Sunday when he was asked why Russia said he needed to, quote, denazify, unquote, Ukraine if the country's own President Vladimir Zelensky is himself Jewish. 
Israel has expressed repeated support for Ukraine following the Russian invasion in February, but wary of straining relations with Russia, a power broker in the neighboring Syria, it initially avoided direct criticism of Moscow and has not enforced formal sanctions on Russian oligarchs. However, relations have grown more strained with Lapid last month, accusing Russia of committing war crimes in Ukraine. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chile Dwarf in Washington. Health officials are trying to identify the cause of cases of acute and severe hepatitis that have affected scores of children in 16 countries, mainly in Europe. Again, Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Over 170 cases of acute severe hepatitis in children aged between one month and 16 years have been reported from 16 countries, 12 in Europe. Most cases have been found in Britain. Other infections have been reported from the United States, Canada, Israel, and Japan. The World Health Organization reports 17 children have required liver transplantation and one child has died. Hepatitis in children sometimes can lead to chronic liver disease and liver failure. Philippa Easterbrook is a scientist at the WHO's program of global HIV, hepatitis, and sexually transmitted infections. She says the origin of these infections in children remains unknown. She says investigations have shown that none of the children have the common viral causes of hepatitis A, B, C, or E. The questionnaires have not identified any common exposure, be it to a toxin or a particular food, and no strong travel uh, history. Uh, And importantly, Um, uh, very few of the children have received COVID vaccinations, so there does not appear to be a link with COVID vaccine. Easterbrook says one line of inquiry is to see whether there is a possible link to adenovirus. This is a common infection in children which can cause respiratory illness, gastroenteritis, conjunctivitis, and bladder infection. She says a few cases of unexplained hepatitis in children occur every year in most countries. She says scientists are trying to ascertain whether the current apparent infection rate is truly unusually high or just a result of better reporting. The suggestions are there is a clear significant uh, uh, increase above that background rate in several of the countries that have been able to report this data with some confidence. But that is what we're trying to establish in the various countries now that we're working with to investigate their cases and establish whether this is the case. The WHO says toxicology, immunology and other studies will continue in hospitals. It notes the likelihood that more cases will be detected before the cause of this infection can be confirmed and before more control and prevention measures can be taken. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Australian airline Qantas has announced plans for record-breaking direct flights from its biggest city, Sydney, to London and New York. Experts say the ultra-long-haul flights are one of modern aviation's last great challenges. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. At more than 17,000 kilometres, Sydney to London would be the world's longest commercial flight. The chief executive of Australian airline Qantas, Alan Joyce, described it as the last frontier for international travel. The non-stop journey would take about 20 hours. 
Joyce added that aircraft cabins would be specially designed for maximum comfort in all classes. There would even be wellness zones for exercise on board the planes that will also fly from Sydney to New York, a distance of about 16,000 kilometres. The ultra-long-haul services are expected to begin in late 2025. Tickets for the long-haul jets are likely to be more expensive than current flights that stop over in cities such as Dubai, Singapore and Los Angeles. Professor Greg Bamber from Monash University's Business School says demand for the services is likely to be mixed because of the popularity of video conferencing technology, although other passengers will want to complete their trip as soon as possible. There's likely to be, on the one hand, increased demand for this kind of flight, given that there are more concerns about infectious diseases like COVID, about wars, as we've got in the Ukraine at the moment. But on the other hand, there may be less demand because people have got used to using Zoom. Business people, for example, have been able to have meetings over Zoom for the last couple of years during the pandemic. Qantas has ordered 12 aircraft from the European manufacturer Airbus in a multi-billion dollar deal to service the new routes. Experts say the announcement is a sign that global air travel is recovering from the pandemic faster than expected. Qantas started direct flights between Perth and London in 2018. Those services were suspended because of COVID-19 border restrictions in Western Australia and the non-stop flights now operate out of the Australian city of Darwin. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at vonews.com. Until next time, I am Tina in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The recently released annual threat assessment by the U.S. intelligence community predicts that Iran will remain a regional menace with broader malign influence activities. The report notes that U.S. personnel, partners, and interests are at risk from the Iranian regime's support for terrorist proxies and the rogue Syrian regime, as well as from Iran's growing willingness to engage in aggressive cyber attacks. In addition, Iran continues to work on its ballistic missile program and has resumed certain nuclear activities beyond the limits set by the Iran nuclear deal. The United States withdrew from the deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, in 2018 under the previous administration. For the past year, the United States has been in indirect negotiations with Iran over a mutual return to full implementation of the JCPOA. As State Department spokesperson Ned Price said, every challenge that we face and would face from Iran, whether that is its support for proxies, its support for terrorist groups, its ballistic missile program, would be all the more difficult to confront if Iran were in the possession of a nuclear weapon. The first thing we want to do is put Iran's nuclear program back in a box to take that challenge off the table.
There has been significant progress in the nuclear negotiations, but they have paused in recent weeks over a number of unresolved issues. At a press conference, spokesperson Price said the United States is prepared for a return to full JCPOA implementation. We are also prepared for broader diplomatic efforts to resolve issues outside of the JCPOA, he declared. If the Iranians do not want to use these talks to resolve other bilateral issues, then we are confident we can very quickly reach an understanding on the JCPOA and begin to re-implement the deal itself. It is Iran that needs to make this decision. Spokesperson Price emphasized that the United States is equally prepared for scenarios in which there is a mutual return to compliance with the JCPOA and scenarios in which there is not a mutual return. We would, he said, greatly prefer the former, to have the JCPOA and the verifiable permanent limits that it would again impose on Iran's nuclear program. Whether we are able to get there or not, that is a question for Iran. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.